Ford, um, Walter Strickland. Uh, Walter, if you just want to stand for a second. Uh, born in Chicago, raised in Southern California, now resident of NC. He is the special advisor to the president at Southeastern for diversity, as well as an instructor in theology. Um, his passion is to help us flourish, it says, in the context of a deep commitment to God's design. And particularly tonight, we'll be looking at God's design for the races and the reconciliation of the races. Uh, he has a wife, Stephanie, and, and a few children and, uh, who can't, unfortunately, be here tonight. Uh, but we want to do this teaching in two parts. Uh, the first part will be tonight when Walter will set kind of a biblical foundation, not just for race, but the reconciliation of the races, how God loves the nations to come together uh, to worship and to enjoy both God and each other. And then he'll also touch on tonight um, how we can learn from each other, kind of tracing a little bit of the history of race in this country, giving us a historical perspective, but how we can profit from one another. And then we'll have some Q&A at the end. And, and Nick will be handing out some cards with some pens that we'll collect after the first session. And then we'll go through those. We wanted to do it in two parts. One will be tentatively in July, where we'll look at some models of how we have attempted at racial reconciliation that have not functioned well. And uh, he'll present one that we think has a biblical design to it and would be more effective. As well as how do we deal with race, especially as it's played in the media, in politics, and in the culture in general. That should be very good. So we wanted to do it in two parts because of the serious nature of the topic, but also of the history of it and the difficulty we have with it. And so uh, tonight is that biblical foundations of what does God have to say on it? And our intention is that when we hear what God has to say on things, we orient ourselves to his view as opposed to try to move them to our view. So I'm thankful that this dear brother, and he knows a number of souls in this church, and, uh, but he's very, very kind to give us his evening. So would you please give him a, a welcome as he comes forward? Well, it's good to be here again. The last time I was in this room was for uh, Brandon and Katie's wedding, which was you know a couple years ago and a few children ago. Uh, and so it's just good to be back here. Thank you for the, the kind of introduction and invitation. So this is a, a fun topic for me. Many of you guys are nervous, like, oh, these conversations about race and culture and the church and, and what have you, they're, they're a little bit tenuous. But uh, I hope that what we can do is establish ourselves in Scripture first. Amen? Because oftentimes when we talk about culture and race and the church, we often do it uh, as though it's a political or sort of social agenda behind it. But really and truly, what we see if we uh, dig into the pages of Scripture, even from the beginning and the early pages of Scripture, we see that this is a biblical uh, idea, that God has created us different, and He created us to be one. And so um, I would like to, as a church that I'm very, very aware that loves the Scripture, that... Uh, if, they can, if you guys can see it in Scripture first, then I think that you'll begin to see some of these themes that we're talking about, about God bringing people together 
as a part of the biblical story, I think you guys will be, even be able to see it in your own devotional eyes. So this is not just the flavor of the month. This is the, the flavor of a lifetime, so to speak. Ah, I got some laughs. <laughs> so, so this will actually, yeah. I don't have great jokes, but I'll try. So um, anyway, so establishing ourselves in Scripture to begin with is extremely important. So um, God's heart for the nations is seen in the Old Testament, and I want to start with Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and we're just going to skim through a bunch of Scripture real quick, and then we'll talk about some history, and then we'll sort of bring it all together at the end. But um, this is the passage where um, Abraham is sort of sent, you know, and, and then his people, his uh, children, are sent to be a ble- they're blessed to be a blessing, so to speak. And uh, this is very important because this is just following the Tower of Babel, where people were sent out, and uh, they're in this plain in the land of Shinar. They're trying to build a city and a tower so that everyone can be in awe of them. They begin to use their hands, not for their glory, or for God's glory, or for their, hold on, for their glory and not for God's glory. And then God said, enough, and he scattered them because there's no tower that can actually get them before the face of God. It's only through uh, the Lord's work through Christ eventually. And so he scattered them abroad across the face of the whole earth. And then we come to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and it says this. And now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless those who bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I will curse. And, and, and by you, all the families on the earth will be blessed. And so, essentially, God sent everybody out. He scattered them. And then through that became all the cultures and the languages that we begin to uh, understand that exist now. And then God says, go get them. I want them to be a part of my people. I want them to know who Yahweh is, the Lord is. And so, this is... God just even beginning to show that it's a part of his redemptive plan for all peoples of all cultures and all languages to be in his family. And so this is fantastic. And then I know we're skipping a bunch, but go with me to the New Testament now. Looking at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this is one of the great commission passages we have. We have five of them. We have one in each of the Gospels, and then we have one in the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, but this is the most famous of them. And so in this, we see that God is still sending his people out, the New Testament people of God, as he did with the Old Testament people of God, to go make disciples of all nations. And it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and this is all peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, uh, even to the end of the age. And so, oftentimes we think about this as an imperative for missions, which it is. But, because... God is fixing the brokenness, yes, between us and God, but between us and each other. This includes 
going and making disciples of, as it says, all nations, which assumes all peoples of all cultures. And see, from the beginning and now even through Matthew 28, we're seeing that God's restorative mission that we see in Scripture includes all people. And this, this theme is just, it's there. And it continues to pop up. And then um, I, I want to then move to, I know I'm speeding along because time is of the essence. Uh, Ephesians 2. And now we're talking about new life in Christ. So we're going to spend a little bit more time here. New life in Christ. And so that's just sort of a, uh, a way to summarize the whole chapter. But then the first 10 verses, it's talking about new life individually. And as evangelicals, this is often the context that we talk about uh, salvation in. We talk about God restoring our broken relationship with himself. And then I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 10. And so imagine this vertical plane being restored between us and God. And you were dead in your, trans- or in your transgressions and sin, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under wrath as the others were also. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Amen? Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his creation or his workmanship, as some translations say, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we can walk in them. And so this is the gospel. This is good news. And this is the news that allows us to be brought near to Christ, allows us to have that relationship with him so that we can be in his forever family. And so oftentimes in evangelical context, we we read that and say, amen. And then we pray and we go home. But there's a second half of this chapter that's vitally important because what we understand is that, yes, God is after healing our individual sin problem that offends him and that broke our relationship with him. But then also, he's also redeeming as far as the curse of Genesis 3 is found. So all that's the all the brokenness that's proliferated throughout creation, Christ is going to fix. And so what Paul does going from the first 10 verses to the second half of the chapter is that he begins to apply these, this gospel that he, that he talks about in verses 1 through 10 to the problem of racism between Jews and Gentiles. So he goes from this chapter that I said is the umbrella is new life in Christ, talking about new life individually in the first half of the chapter, and then now he begins to talk about new life 
communally. So what does this gospel do to the community? We saw that it restores individuals to Christ, but now what does it do in the community of faith? And this is important. This is, this is when it starts getting real good. And you guys are like, when are we going to talk about this diversity thing? About race in the church? Verse 13 to 17. But now, in, Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, you were far away, or you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And that's literally a dividing wall that separated Jews and Gentiles in the temple so that they, when Christ then died and rose again, that veil was torn, and so they can now worship together. He made no, this is 15, He made of no effect the law consisting of the commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new humanity from the two, resulting in peace. That's a beautiful picture there. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. So there's something that's within the gospel that's not only bringing us together, but putting to death hostility with it. Verse 17 When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. And so this is good news, isn't it? So I I often am convinced that whenever a Christian gets a burden for this issue of race and seeing people of different backgrounds in the church, we too often look, you know, outside of Scripture and outside of the church for answers and we simply take these secular ideas and try to baptize them and make use of them in the church. But here it's saying that this gospel of Jesus Christ, something within it has the ability to give us what we need so that we can be made one. And then function like we're one in, in the life of the church. And so one of my passions is to allow us to look to the Scripture to look for these answers. Not just so that we can be positionally in Christ as one, but so that our churches, the local manifestations of the body of Christ, can look like this picture that we're going to read about in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. You guys have just been jumping through your Bibles. I appreciate the pages turning. So, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 is a wonderful picture. It's a picture of the kingdom to come And it's the snapshot of what we as the body of Christ should aim to be like even now. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10, they say this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and crying out before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. You have people that are made in God's image. And something is going on here. So if you go way back to creation, God created everything with diversity. We don't just have land. We have 
the plains. We have mountains. We have valleys. We have not just trees, but we have oaks. We have pine. We have you know beech. We have all these types of things. So there are trees, but there's all kinds of trees. There's land, but there's all kinds of land. There are people, but there's all kinds of people. And so from the beginning, we see that there's all types and then uh, all those who are in God's image are brought together. And so what we see here is that there is, so just to take a step back, oftentimes we think about the kingdom of God and we assume that we're all just going to be one single race or that our racial differences and our cultural differences are just going to fall away. But I would contend that that, that's not God's plan as we see here because God has brought so much more glory when He's seen as Lord over all. God is saying that the proclamation of salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. So the person and work of Christ is more powerful and is more glorious than even our distinctions. And then like because of that, we can all be brought in to Christ. So we have our diversity, but our unity is in Christ. So many times we, we, we try to, if you meet somebody, even someone who you know is a believer from a different background, you end up having a conversation with them trying to figure out where they're from, trying to figure out who they know, what shows they watch, because you're trying to find some common ground. You guys ever experienced that? Or is that just me? <laughs> because I got some stories to tell on myself, if you guys didn't, so I can show you how that works. But since you guys understand, you know, we, we often do that, even if we know they're a believer. Because there's something in our minds subconsciously that says that Christ is not enough to unify us. Christ plus having the same hometown. Christ plus liking the same sports team. Christ plus something else is what is able to bring us together. But if we see that there is these people from every tribe, tongue, and language, they were crying out with a unified proclamation about salvation belonging to God. It wasn't Salvation belongs to the God and go Flyers or whatever you, you want to say. Or, you know, I, I would say go Duke, but um, it's not quite that. <laughs> but it's Christ alone. So I, I don't know if you guys like choirs. I grew up in the church with a big old choir. And uh, so I'm going to get all nostalgic for a second. So it was one thing when the choir was singing in unison. You know, all these different people, all the different parts, soprano, alto, baritone, tenor, singing in unison. But then, you know, the second time through that bridge, they break in the parts. Something happens there. It's like going from, like, um, I don't know, like black and white TV to, like, 4K. It's like something just happens. And so that's exactly what it's like when we see the people of God together all different types of people, and you have to wonder what in the world is holding them together? What has the power to hold them together? And then we cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. So I think that as we begin to try to think about Scripture, to think about this task of the church and race and this, what's central that the church you know, the cornerstone of the church, which is Christ, I think is that we don't think enough of Christ is our problem. We don't read Scripture and see Him working, bringing people together, and doing what He said that He will do. 
And so hopefully now, I mean, even though we just skip through it, these themes of Christ bringing all that is broken in the world to restoration is all throughout it, and he's bringing people together, and it's just amazing. We can go story after story of Rahab. We can talk about um, uh, Ruth and Boaz. We could talk about, I mean, story after story. People who are not even Jewish being grafted into the family of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We could talk about how Christ is, you know, the gospel is jumping social, cultural, economic barriers and how Christ is bringing everyone in. So this is the picture of unity in Christ. And in that unity, we have this diversity that is held together by the power of the gospel. But the question is, is that what we see when we look at the church in America? Is that the picture that we are portraying in our local fellowships, our local bodies of Christ? And I would have to say that unfortunately that's not the case. The case is still true today as it was when Martin Luther King said it, that 11 a.m. is still the most segregated hour of the week. And LifeWay Research did a study of that in 2011, and that is, that's still true. Unfortunately, and so how has this state of affairs come about? So this is where we transition into our history lesson. So we see what the Scripture is doing. We see that it's giving us this picture of unity in Christ with all the diversity and the creative power of God being unified in Him, but that's not the picture that we see in the church today. So what is the picture? How did we get here? And the reason why it's important to even understand how we got here is because if we don't understand this historical narrative, we we don't understand the things that we're trying to apply the Gospel to for it to fix. And so this, this is why Pastor Mercer was, was saying, hey, because he, he and I talked uh, sometime earlier this week, and I told him what I was going to do, and he says, that's not, that's not one evening, that's like two, maybe three. And so he, he said, cool your jets, sir, is what he told me. And then so he said, we're going to do it in two sessions. But I'll have to say, so this historical piece, what is, how did we get here? What is our inheritance as people who are living in this era? Well, and to understand that, we have to go all the way back to pre-Civil War times. When you actually had, you know, and African Americans and you had Caucasians worshiping in the same churches. While they're in the same churches, they were in segregated seating. You would have Caucasians in the back and African Americans, or in the, in the front, African Americans in the back or in the balcony. And so the moment when the body of Christ was supposed to be a picture of this kingdom vision to come of every tribe, tongue, and nation, even in the house of God, there was segregation. And also, the Lord's Supper, with the broken body and shed blood being represented in the elements, also was a picture of this is whom you are in fellowship with. Here are the folks who you are, you know, pushing back the gates of Hades with, and we identify ourselves by taking the wafer and taking the cup. But when this was done, it was done whites first and then blacks second. So even in this vivid picture of what the gospel is doing, reconciling us to God as we see in the elements of the broken body and shed blood, 
but then also it should be identifying those who are in the family of God. Well, the way in which it was done depicted a division even within the family. And then there was the pulpit, the place where the Word of God was taught. So while there's nothing sacred about a pulpit, when something is said in it, it's often assumed to be given the authority of God. You guys see how that works? There's something about when someone stands behind a pulpit like this and says, thus saith the Lord, there's, there's a certain weight given to that space. Well, prior to the Civil War, the slave codes were read from that space as well as the Word of God. Making those who were both slave and master begin to believe that thus saith the Lord applied to, yes, the Scripture, but also to the slave codes. And then even uh, with catechesis, Bible study, the, 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 the um, uh, how should I say it, this, the study curriculum for children and adults alike was manipulated and, and given to African Americans for them to, to, to think that God was for them being in bondage. God was the one who initiated their bondage and they ought to serve God as they would serve their master, and then they shouldn't try to uh, you know, become a Christian and escape that. And so passages like Genesis 9, the, the curse of Ham w- was taught. Passages like 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul was saying, I'm going to remain as I am when I was saved, he was talking about being a single man, but slave masters will read it to their slaves saying, you should remain a slave as you were before you were saved. So these texts were manipulated in this Bible study curriculum in order to uh, make slaves docile and subservient to their masters. And so, at this point, there was some rumblings amongst African Americans, as you can imagine, in the church. There was, and it all came to a head when, um, I don't have this in here, I just, I like telling stories, so this is a historical one for you. There, I think it was 1787, there was Absalom Jones, there was Richard Allen, they're in St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. They came into church, uh, and I guess the, ser- the service had already begun. There, it was a prayer time, so they stopped and reverenced to God in prayer. During their prayer, one of the uh, deacons said, you need to go upstairs because there's a balcony, which is where the uh, African Americans would sit at the time. And then they said, when the prayer is over, we'll go. And then, so they bowed their heads, and then that deacon went and got others to help usher them into the balcony even before the prayer was over. That day, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, they left, and then all the African Americans that were with them or in the balcony left as well. And at that point, they were just trying to find a place where they can worship with decency and be respected as image bearers. (coughs) And this was the birth of what we now call the black church. And so it was really, I mean, this, you know, people now ask questions, you know what, should they have left the church? You know, it, it's, it's extremely difficult to, to answer that question because on the one hand, it is good for the people to, of God to worship together, but under those circumstances, who can worship in spirit and in truth under those circumstances? And so you have these, this, the brokenness of the world begin to war, and then there's a split that emerges, you see? The amount of, uh, the, the, the depth of this split between black and white churches is profound. 
So after the Civil War, black Christians established uh, their own denominations and to, to escape the systemic oppression that was in the churches from which they came. So I don't know if you guys are stats, stats people, but I, I have a couple of numbers that just kind of help us see just how much there's this divide you know, uh, between white churches and black churches. So black membership in South Carolina Methodist churches fell from 42,500 in 1860, 42,500 black people in Methodist churches in 1860, to around 650 in 1873. 13 years. From 42,500, 13 years later, it's 650. So you see that there was this complete, almost a complete break between white and black churches. And then uh, also amongst Baptists, by 1906, nine years after the National Baptist Convention was established, it claimed more than 2 million congregants, which was 61% of all church, black churchgoers in America. So 61% of all black church scores in America were in that one denomination. This is the, the National Baptist Convention. And so, uh, and so this just demonstrates how deep this divide was uh, soon after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. And so, so now it's just commonplace for us to think of black church, white church. You see? And, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and it's hard for us to even imagine the church without those sort of racial... Uh, descriptors on them because the history of the church is racialized so to speak because you have to conceive of it as black or white seeing those traditions sort of come about but then this is this is the inheritance that we receive when we're born into this country if you're a believer you will go to you know primarily a black or a white church or a hispanic church or an international church or and you know and so we just have begun to make it commonplace to do churches in these little enclaves that are defined by either race or culture. And so, for me, the question is, okay, this is what we've inherited, but how do we change it? And so, I I really don't want to spend all of our time talking about the problem. I want to begin from Scripture to talk about some steps towards getting ourselves out of the ruts that history has given us. You see, how do we get ourselves out of the ruts that history has given us? So the first step is this. It's understanding ourselves biblically. Understanding ourselves biblically. Uh, And this is just the making of a blind spot. So when, when we worship apart, there's some things that we really miss out on um, and, uh, as believers. And I don't want to give up. So, see, I'm trying to hurry. This is not going well. Um, there's some things that we're just sort of blind to, culturally speaking. Um, and there's areas in our lives and areas in our world, in our communities where the gospel needs to be applied that we miss out on. So, and we're blind to these things. And so I want to talk about the making of a blind spot. And again, turning back to Scripture to begin to churn some of these um, uh, solutions, I want to start in 1 Corinthians 13. You guys are like, the love chapter. What are we talking about there? This chapter, it does ponder love, yes, but it ponders the coming kingdom and the continuity 
in discontinuity with now. And so in verses 8 through 13, he begins to talk about, you know, the present and the future, and he applies it to faith, hope, and love. And, and then he says that we need to embody those as these people who are signposts of the kingdom. But as it relates to our blind spots that we're talking about, we, we can talk about, or we can examine verses 11 and 12, looking at the now and the not yet. So I'm going to have my now hand, this is what's going on now, and this is what's going on in the future. Verses 11 and 12. So now, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. You see how he's dancing back and forth between what goes on now and what goes on in the future? And so Paul is distinguishing the thinking of a child with the thinking of an adult. As Pastor Mercer said, I have a three-year-old. You didn't say say ages. But I do have a three-year-old at home who thinks she's a three-nager. And she knows everything in her own mind. And I know nothing. But, it's clear that there's things that I know that she doesn't, but she doesn't really realize that. And that's how we are. We see things as children, and then in the future, it's hard to even fathom how much we will know as adults, you know, when we're a child. And for us, holy cow, there's so many things that we don't know now, but in the sweet by and by, in the kingdom, we will know far more about ourselves and about our God. And so, and he even talk, he, he gives this illustration of seeing through a mirror dimly, and he's talking about how Moses was called by God face to face, but other prophets, you know, received their callings through dreams and visions. And so Moses was able to see so much more clearly than the other ones as far as in their calling to the prophetic ministry. And so what does that have to do with us? It's important because everyone sees through a mirror dimly right now. And I think we're prone to think that we see through the mirror pretty clear. And what I would submit or suggest is that the things that are part of our experience, they help us see clearly in some areas, but sort of cloud our vision in other areas. And so since every human is from a specific socioeconomic status, a particular geographic location, has a specific upbringing, is a product of a certain time and a particular racial background that constitutes our lived experience, these particulars are what dim our mirror in some ways and give us vision in other ways. In that specific social location, everyone is given a worldview. So what I'm trying to begin to say is that there's things that I don't see clearly that you might. And there's things that you see clearly that I don't. All that to say is we are better together than we are apart. Because none of us see through a mirror clearly as we will in the future. We all see through a mirror dimly. You see, so, so this, this is my enemy today, the clock. Suffice it to say that it's not a sin to have a blind spot. Because after all, Christ laid aside His divine imperatives when He came to earth. But it is 
dangerous to admit that we don't see everything as clearly as we might have thought. And so this is when it's important for us to have different people from different backgrounds to sharpen us as we move through this process called sanctification and mission in the Christian life. You guys see how that begins to be important? And so this is, okay, now step two of getting out. So step one, um, as we saw, was understanding ourselves. Step one of getting, our, getting ourselves out of the ruts of history is to understand ourselves biblically, which is those who have blind spots, those who see through a glass dimly. The second step of getting ourselves out of the ruts of history is to understand the social construction of a blind spot. The social construction of a blind spot. And so this idea is that birds of a feather flock together, right? It's the path of least resistance. So we go to the church, we go to churches with people who are, who are similar to us. We live in neighborhoods and with people who are similar to us. As a result, we send our kids to schools with people who are similar to us. And this being homogeneous, being the same, can be awful polarizing. Because after all, if our lenses are shaded fairly similarly, we can get together, and then all of a sudden, everything becomes fairly cut and dry in the world, doesn't it? We're all of a sudden very, very right. Because everyone that you know who loves Jesus thinks the same way as you do. And then those other people out there who think differently are just crazy. I mean, this, this, is, this is what it, it, it comes to. And for you young people out there, social media does you no favors. Because you pick and choose who you befriend and who you follow and who you listen to to get a message that's crafted to be an echo chamber for you. And so this is what, and then even, uh, and for the old people in the room who are watching news networks, we pick and choose which news network that we watch uh, because of the perspective from which it's filtered through. And so it's very, very easy for us in the era of the tablet and the smartphone and social media and also with this proliferation of news networks to begin to, you know, pick and choose the filter through which we are looking at the world. And so this idea of birds of a feather flocking together, it can be very, very um, toxic to someone whose experiences, their you know, their, their life looks very different from yours. Not that you're differing on the essentials of Scripture and of the Gospel, but just because you're coming to Christ, to unity in Him from perspectives that are all being brought under submission to Him. Do you guys see how that's important? So that's the second step, uh, is, to, is, is to understand how our social construction sort of creates, or how... Uh, our social construction creates blind spots and, and what have you. The third step to getting ourselves out of the rut of history is to understand how blind spots shape our reading of Scripture. How our blind spots shape our reading of Scripture. And so, this is, this is actually very profound because we all run to Scripture with the most um, imperative things in our life experience, do we not? with our hurts, with our pains, with our joys, with our sorrows. And so oftentimes it's those things that drive us to the eternal truths of God. And so, um, so there's this illustration I like, to, I like to tell. Imagine that you were, so I used to have an office on the third, I teach at Southeastern Seminary, 
So I used to be in Patterson Hall. Many of you guys might know Patterson Hall. Uh, one of the newer buildings on campus. I was on the third floor. I looked, the, and out of my window, I can see like a grassy knoll, a little lake, s- tall trees. It was, you know, this, it was, it was fantastic. And now I'm on the first floor looking at a parking lot because I got a promotion. <laughs> I don't understand how that works. But needless to say, I'm not going to gripe about that, but I can if you'd like on the break. But if you got three people to look out of my old window and I said, hey, look out for five seconds and then we're going to come back to my table and then we're going to talk about what was outside the window. If you have a person who was a uh, the primary caregiver to children, they might come back and say, you know, what? there's a great grassy knoll out there where the kids can run around and play and have a great time. They can tire themselves out. And they can come in, have a lunch, have a snack and take a nap, you know. Somebody else who's like a horticulture expert who likes trees and stuff, they might say, hey, there was like these 120-foot pines. That means they're about this old and all these sorts of things. And then you have someone who is an architect. They say, yeah, in the distance I saw some bungalow-style houses that are probably built in 1975, and you know, which is true. There was a grassy knoll. There was the trees. There was the bungalow-style houses. Well, what, what happened there? The, their lives prior to looking out the window, began to shape what they saw outside of it. Began to shape what their eyes were immediately drawn to outside the window. Of course, if they started to say like a unicorn's out there, there was no unicorn out there. That's just crazy. So there, there are limits to this, right? But what, what I'm trying to say is this, because some of you guys are like, where's he going with this? For some of us, there's certain themes of Scripture that are, we're just drawn to. For those of you who had a wonderful father, God as Father is a great gift to you. And then perhaps some of you guys who didn't have a great father, you're like, you know what, I finally have a father, and it's God the Father. For some of you guys who are, you know, uh, I, I know for me it's important when I begin to see that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. I love that imagery that we see even in Ephesians 2, you know, and then, and then also in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. I love those passages of everyone coming together, we're better together, that sort of language. And then those who are more melodramatic and want to jump into Ecclesiastes because nothing, everything is meaningless and nothing is new under the sun. I mean, some of you guys are more, more drawn to that as well. But if we only read the Scripture with those who are just like us, we would miss the multifarious wonder of the Scripture, wouldn't we? Because some people are, are drawn to different elements of it and we are better for looking at what's actually there from having read the Scripture in community. And so I'm talking about a diversity that stretches far beyond just race and culture right now. We need to read the Scripture with those who are younger than us, those who are older than us, those who are empty nesters, those who have toddlers at home, those who have middle schoolers at home, those who are you know, in the socioeconomically privileged, disadvantaged, and the list goes on of the ways in which we can be different. And those things are helpful as we look into the eternal Word of God to mine it for its truths. And so, this is, so we have to understand that our blind spots do influence our understanding of Scripture. And, um, so I, and, and for me, as I begin to dwell upon this, this is a profound sort of realization that if I'm reading the Scripture with a bunch of people who are just like me, then we're, we're probably going to miss something. 
And so this, this actually came to me when I was reading uh, the work of Jonathan Edwards. And so I'll give this illustration and then we'll, we'll stop and then we'll take a break. So um, I, read a, I read John Piper actually. And if you read John Piper, you're really reading Jonathan Edwards because he quotes <laughs> more Edwards than he actually writes himself. And so, um, so just go read the, the source, you know. Uh, that's no knock on John Piper. He just has good taste. So, um, so I began to like read Jonathan Edwards, and I said, "Wow, this, he's fantastic." Because usually you have people who are like great at the you know philosophy and theology and languages and stuff, but they're not great as pastors and evangelists. So you have the people, the theory folks, you have the practice folks. But he seemed to be able to do both. For those of you who have read Edwards, he did both. And so uh, I said, "You know, how how did he do that?" I'm curious. And so I began to read, as any nerd would, I read all of Jonathan Edwards, which is like a whole shelf of books. And um, I came to a particular letter that he wrote, and it was called a draft letter on slavery. And I said, awesome. He is going to attack this issue with the gospel that he's articulated so well so many times. And as I, re- as I read it, I had a smile on my face, but then midway through, my smile turned into a frown, and then by the end, I was in tears. Because not only did he not destroy the practice with the gospel, he justified the practice with Scripture. And the thing that I had to ask myself, how in the world was this possible? This is one of the greatest theological minds that I'm still convinced this land has ever seen. Yet, he was susceptible to this. Everybody he knew, from, from what I know, I mean, I read the shelf of books and the, the biographies and the autobiographies. Everybody that he knew, for the most part, and respected, uh, his family, those who he surrounded himself with were just like him. He never sat in a room with a person like a Lemuel Haynes and said, let's read the Bible together. He never sat in the room with somebody who was enslaved and said, let's read God's word together and, you know, and become more like Christ and push hard after him. And let's take our concerns, our worries, our hopes and our dreams before the throne of God and then sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. He never did that. And so my my purpose here in telling you about this is not to demonize Jonathan Edwards because we all have clay feet, don't we? My reason for telling this story is because if someone who's that brilliant is susceptible to having a blind spot, then who are we? And I'm I'm convinced that God has given us the body. And not just the body in homogeneous pockets scattered around the face of the earth, but He's given us the body of Christ as it's represented in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, to help us not fall into the same ruts that a person like Jonathan Edwards did, as brilliant as he was. And so hopefully, in this first sort of hour together, we can see that, yes, the Scripture is about people coming together under the Lordship of Christ. But our history as a, as a nation, it, it hasn't given us that. That's not where we are, but then the Bible doesn't leave us there. 
the Bible and not just sociological practices gives us means to be able to get out of these ruts that our history has given us. And so, um, the, in the next sort of session together, what I'll do is, um, because I want to try to begin to demonstrate the value of the two traditions, I mean, and I know that there's all sorts of traditions, but we can talk about the, the, the two poles in this discussion as being the black church and the white church. As, as, because I've, I've sort of had a foot in both worlds a little bit, there is so much that the, that the two traditions can learn from each other if they only got together. And so I want to do like a little exercise with us walking throughout the history of the church and seeing how the two traditions actually emerged the way they did and then saying how because they have emerged from different soil, how they can begin to sharpen each other like iron sharpens iron. Just to give us a taste of what we actually could have if we did it. And so that'll be the next session. And um, yes, so I'm not quite at 10 till, not quite on the hour. I split the difference.